Hey, welcome to the Trapola Podcast. I'm your host, Dan Runcy. Our guest today is Ernest Wilkins, who is a freelance journalist. He is also the CEO, the head of Office Hours. And he is a go-to person for culture and marketing, especially as it relates to hip-hop and culture. Ernest, welcome to the pod. What's up, man? That was a great intro. I feel empowered. You called me the CEO. I want to go run out and put that on my Instagram bio right quick. <laughs> hey, yeah, you got to yeah, think about these things. And I'm sure you probably get those too. Like you'll get these email inbounds and it's like, oh, someone's calling me the president of this. I've never yeah. used the title <laughs> president of Trafidel, but sure. Yeah, LinkedIn right, people are it. very courteous sometimes. Like sometimes they do the absolute most, but they'll definitely give you a title that you did not give yourself. They'll be like, hey, we know you're the chairman of the national board of your newsletter. And I'm just like, <laughs> am I that? Okay. Sure. We could spend a whole session talking about LinkedIn messages and the requests that people <laughs> send. Have you ever had a rapper hit you up on LinkedIn? I haven't had a rapper hit me up, but I've had people on their team, like their managers, hit me up on LinkedIn. We were talking about people calling themselves CEO. I got hit up by this rapper one time. I was really impressed by the presentation because he straight up was just like, I'm the CEO and the rapper and the manager of some other rapper. And I want you to listen to our music. And I was like, you know what? What a straightforward pitch. I'm not going to listen to it because you pitched it to me through LinkedIn. But I want to be clear. I appreciated your pitch. <laughs> if he sent you a DM, would you have responded? No, 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 no. Don't send me any music, please. <laughs> <laughs> Half of my DMs are like potential business opportunities and a fraction of those are things I would consider. But then the yeah. other half of them are like DMs from people who are looking for coverage and things like that. I mean, I don't yeah. hate it. I respect the hustle, but no, now's not the place. <laughs> but, yeah, I'm with you. <laughs> yeah. We did not come together to give the SoundCloud rappers and everyone else hustling a hard time. We did come together to talk about challenger brands. And yes. we're doing this today because you and I came together. You actually wanted to hit me up and said, Hey, I have this idea. I think that we should both talk about this concept of challenger brands. I think that it works with what you cover in Trapital, works with what I'm covering in office hours. Let's write about it. Let's podcast about it. So for the people that are less familiar, Ernest, how would you describe a challenger brand? So the term challenger brand comes from a business book that was written in 1999 called Eating the Big Fish. I recommend if you want to learn more about it, start there because it's essentially the starting conversation, right? The book is a marketing book and it explains three specific criteria that make up a challenger brand. Now, you've heard of challenger brands. If you're listening to this right now, you don't recognize them as challenger brands, but you have heard of them. So think of Warby Parker. Warby Parker is a challenger brand. Casper is a challenger brand. Pretty much anybody that like sponsors a podcast at this point you can think of them as a potential challenger brand, right? Under Armour is probably a strong example. And what differentiates these brands from the industry leaders that they're in and what makes them, in effect, challenger brands, three things. One, state of the market, right? So that means that the brand itself is not a market leader in its space, but also it's not a niche brand. So it means it's doing enough business to the point where you're not a number one, you're not number two, but you're also not at the bottom of the totem pole. You know what I mean? You see a lot of challenger brands in the you, you know, rental car space. There's at least three that I can think of, but they all kind of exist within the same plateau of we make some money, but we don't make as much as maybe the number one or number two. The second concept would be state of mind, right? So that means the brand has ambitions beyond conventional marketing resources, a.k.a. they do 
more with less by using unorthodox techniques, stunts, like a lot of places who influencer sponsorship. Honestly, podcast sponsorship is unconventional marketing resources for a lot of brands, you know, until recently, I would say. So I think brands who are willing to embrace new and emerging forms of technology, stuff that you can kind of get a bigger return on your investment with less upfront capital. And last is that rate of success, right? So that means the brand has experienced significant and rapid growth. You know, this isn't a sleeper where it's been kind of hiding in plain sight this whole time. These are brands that you're hearing about, you're seeing them in the national conversation, but they are not the number one. You know, Under Armour is not Nike, it's not Adidas, but it's still doing a really good job of marketing itself as well as doing all of the same things that those brands are doing. And the reason I thought about this for hip hop is because one, and this is a whole other tangent I can go on, when it comes to things like media entrepreneurship for, uh, I think the last couple of weeks in the publishing industry, have proven anything is that voices like black voices, marginalized voices, I'll generalize and say that are not given the same level of platform for success. And that means things down to basic concepts, like looking at brands and business the same way. I think there's a really big gap in music business coverage around this kind of stuff. I think we look at ad studies and marketing case studies and we say to ourselves, okay, we know that Coca-Cola did this. We know that Oscar Mayer did this, but the thing that I think would help realistically get a lot more marginalized folks, specifically black folks involved with the business of music is if they had a relevant way to understand it. And I think when we come in to the business, a lot of times, your first conversation is a contract with a stranger who is basically like, yeah, you know, you might've read that all about the music business book, but what you didn't read was how these people look at your music the second they go in inside, right? I think for all the emotion that we have with any creative project, like this stuff is a product. So long story short, I wanted people to start looking at rap labels and, you know, other organizations that are more cultural in nature, the same way you would look at these brands. And so taking that concept that would apply to a brand like an Under Armour and applying it to iconic labels that people have that brand awareness of already, like a No Limit Records or even a newer contender like QC, is the kind of thing that I'm trying to push everybody towards doing. Because if we can make the educational stuff become relevant to people's lives, then you don't have to be in those predatory situations as much. I agree with that. And I think that even if we go back to some of those examples you brought up in the beginning, whether it's your Warby Parker or your Under Armour, they fit into two main categories. And I do think these are part of those characteristics for a challenger brand. You're either A, leveraging the technology capabilities we have now to produce your product at lower marginal cost. It is therefore not just cheaper, but the internet allows you to also distribute your product in a much cheaper way than you did in the past. And therefore, you can reduce the cost. So if you're a Casper, you can undercut what your CLE, Simmons, and Serta is doing. You can come in with the product and you're more likely to hit the type of person that is going to listen to a highbrow NPR or this American yes. Life podcast. And I think that's definitely what we've seen in the past few years. Totally. The second group, and this is where Under Armour fits in, and I think it's where the two labels that we're going to talk about for hip hop is you found a lane in a subsector of a lane that the broader industry wasn't necessarily focused on. Because yeah. if we go back to Under Armour, I want to say it was like 2005 or whenever the start of it was, it was focused as this extreme brand for working out. Like you remember those big yeah. commercials with the yeah, NFL? Yeah, we must protect like, this house and all that. Yeah. Stuff. 
But like yeah. before that, though, the history of Under Armour is crazy because that brand literally got on the map because of Any Given Sunday. The people who made Any Given Sunday, that movie, go back and watch it, Oliver Stone, if you've never seen it. They contracted Under Armour to make the jerseys for that team. And because they look so sick, that's how Under Armour, like, entered, I think, the national conversation. And then those commercials you're talking about, that's, I think, everybody's first real, like, oh, we must protect this house. Like, all that. Right, right. That's a good point, because when I think back to any given Sunday, that is pretty much an Under Armour aesthetic for the entire movie. Yeah. It's a commercial. I mean, that movie is extra in a lot of ways. And I think Under Armour, the 2000s was a very extra brand. But over time, and I think this is what we kind of see with both of these labels we're going to talk about, QC and No Limit, they extend themselves to be a bit more like the norm. And I think that's something you can only do when you have that niche, you define it well, and you expand from there. Yeah. We should kind of address the concept of market share because in industries like this, it is possible to have a dominant market share within a smaller industry, right? Like you can be the king of making wooden furniture or something like that and have a dominant over the wooden furniture market. And I think rap is the same way where, you know, obviously because of the labels all kind of being, you know, part of larger conglomerates, it's a situation where market share is so crucial. So it's truly disruptive when a brand like a QC or a No Limit comes in, because a lot of times these brands assume that they have market share everywhere. So when somebody comes in and they say, I'm making, oh, I sold 250,000 records independently. It's like, wait, what? And I think a lot of bigger brands are smart enough to say, well, instead of trying to compete, we'll just buy this person or work in, in what the case that I think both of these labels had was we're going to work in distribution with these people because we have the platform, but they have the product that everybody's looking for. So with that, No Limit has always stuck out to me, and I'd written about them in the past as well. Mm-hmm. But yeah, they had always stuck out for a few reasons. One, I think Master P branded himself as one of hip hop's more ownership focused guys. Like yes. if there was a chance to have a bigger pie and, yeah. or rather if there's a chance to have a smaller pie and own all that pie versus having a slice of the bigger pie, he wanted to own all of the pie, you know? And of course there's a trade-off that comes with that. But I think that mentality is what made no limit work so well. When you look back to like the branding, how they position themselves, how successful mm-hmm. he was before the priority records deal and before the majors even right. came through, it all stems back to that same mentality. Exactly. And I think that's one of the things I wrote about where the story of how Master P got to that distribution deal to me is more interesting than what happened afterward, right? Because I think what happened afterward is just capitalism. Like my man went to did too much, tried to extend the brand too far, and now there it is. But I think the story of how he basically cornered that market share was super important. And that's the main thing I kind of tried to write about in the piece, because it was very much concentrated. He approached it like a business person would approach launching a product. And I think we've seen that kind of mentality in a lot of the more famous musical cultural movements over the last couple of decades. Like Motown's the same way, like Barry Gordy ran it like a factory. You know what I'm saying? And so, unfortunately, because of the deep emotional ties that music has with people, we don't necessarily always have the ability to step outside of that and look at this stuff for what it is. But P won by doing that. He took classes at the University of Houston on a basketball scholarship, you know, kind of saw what 
you look at icons like a Jay Prince and then we're doing with ghetto with the ghetto boys and just rap a lot of records in general, you know, the legends like, you know, a ball and JG. And I always say, like, we talk about like the idea of the chilling circuit, but the chilling circuit has never gone anywhere. This weekend in Valdosta, Georgia, I guarantee you there's a rap show. And I think those secondary tertiary markets became these hotbeds for a lot of artists. And I promise you that every Southern rapper of influence over the last 25 years will tell you the same thing. Like, you get that fan base and you get that loyalty in those small towns. And so Master P saw that, was taking business classes, and then relocated to Richmond, California to be around his family. Then his grandfather died. He got a $10,000 check as part of the negligence, I think, malpractice lawsuit from the hospital that his, his grandpa died at. And he took that money and he was like, okay, I'm going to make a run of it. And so what he did, which I thought was interesting, was he was enrolled in community college out there and was like, okay, business, I got to learn what my customers need, right? So he's going out to the swap meets, he's talking to people, he's active in the streets. But the key differentiation that he did was, I'm going to learn about the retail side. And he opened up a record store. That record store was No Limit Record. So what he did that I thought was super interesting was he looked at it from a business. He said, okay, my customers are these people. I need to know what they like. I need to know their habits. I need to know the things that any brand would need to know in order that you got to do the research, right? So I think it's a really important takeaway for folks who might find themselves in the position of trying to create their own little no limit. You need more research. And I think the qualitative research when it comes to this kind of stuff is more important than the quantitative. And by that, I mean, numbers and data are great. I love that you can look at the streams and you can see where you are, but I truly believe specifically with rap music, you still got to go outside. And you got to get your music in the hands of people who can influence culture. And with Masterpiece Journey specifically, I think if you're missing that backstory, then you miss the whole point. Because when people talk about it, everyone remembers that iconic 1998 year. when yeah, make gold, them say on. Exactly. Make them say on was everywhere. And I forget the numbers, but I want to say it was like, pretty much an album every other week the pen and pixel was there the same spot in the record store wherever you lived in the country and i mean it's impressive of course they didn't have to go on tour they made all their money through that that year but yeah i mean for all these rappers and teams like i know nipsey would always say we want to build the no limit of the west and yep. alone everyone's trying to build the no limit of x which is kind of funny because it makes me think of the tech thing of everyone trying to build yeah. the and Yelp of X, yeah. but I, I yeah, get exactly. it. Like, that's kind of the People way that... trying to solve problems that don't need to get solved. In 1998, No Limit Records dropped 23 albums. Okay, that's about every other week. Yeah. Every other week, 52 weeks in a year, 23 albums over 52 weeks. I mean, for context, the previous year, they dropped eight. So, I mean, and then you can actually tell when they started to get money because it's like 91, the first release was just one, then three, then four, then five. Then four again for some reason, then eight, then 23, then, you right. know what I'm saying? And it just kind of went from there. And so it's scaling. You look at that as a business, like, okay, how many products did we ship this year? We shipped this many, you know, and it's very wild to look at it from that context because to your point about Nipsey and them, they saw they are the exact same descendants of that. I believe the sexy term is direct to consumer audience, right? Like those people are the ones who are getting out here. They're in the streets. They know that people are messing with their music. And I also point this out in the piece, but when I talk about like making sure the people who are in charge of culture know you, No Limit dropped a project in 95 called Down South Hustlers, right? It's a double CD. It features rappers from no less than I think seven different cities, right? So like Kansas City, 
The Dayton family was on that. So that's Flint, Michigan. The Bay obviously was involved. You had everybody from Houston on there. You know, A-Ball and JG were on there too. So that's Tennessee. Like, so you have essentially set up a local influencer program. Now, this is a stretch, but look, stick with me. If I have a product and I know that because of my work in the streets, I know the DJs, I know the promoters, I've been active, and I know that I have the hottest rapper in your city on my track, odds are the DJ, because he and I or she and I have a personal relationship, that song is going to get played. And so now I'm at a point where I can facilitate it because you still like the music and you're already a fan of Master P. You might get no limit from dawn to dusk. You're going to hear it at the barbershop. You're going to hear it at the club on Saturday night. You're going to hear it on the radio because that's pre-97. So they had, you know, real mix shows. And all of that, to me, is just a really savvy marketing play. It's media. It's right. just like you're getting earned media. People are writing about you. Not so much, but they're talking about you. You're in the streets. People are sharing your stuff organically. Mm-hmm. And this is physical music that we're talking about. This isn't streams. This isn't a playlist. Like people are moving CDs. They made something like, I think he sold 250,000 copies of the ghettos trying to kill me independent. Like that's a lot of hand to hand, but it's because they built this machine that allowed it to that. They used to say like, roll with us or get rolled over. Like that's real. Yeah. And you had had this quote in your article and I think it speaks to this. You said that DJs are the most underutilized method of brand awareness. And that's exactly what this is because they are the people that you want to get that not just have the eyeballs, right? Because I think that's what yeah. gets missed with influencers. Yeah. Like it's not just someone that has 800,000 or 2 million followers who right. are those people that are following. And yeah, the DJs yeah. are going to attract the tastemakers. And then those tastemakers yeah. are going to play that in their areas. I will double down on that statement by saying, you know, I think that 90% of the time artists spend trying to reach out to press to get coverage. They need to spend working relationships with DJs. As an example, who without a doubt is one of the most popular stories of this entire quarantine. It's probably going to be D nice. Right. Mm-hmm. And all he's doing is his job, which is being a DJ and using the power of music to help people. And so if you have that and you have every single city has, a dominant DJ. Every single city has a crew of DJs who are down. And so if your music is aligning with a certain DJ's aesthetic and you don't have a relationship because you'd rather go try to get LeBron to listen to your stuff, like it's just a bad return on your investment. Go get yourself hot in the streets. Because again, I promise if your stuff is hot, LeBron James will find you. Yeah, this was something I talked with um, Sean Prez about a couple months ago. He used to be Bad Boys VP Marketing. He ran the street team. And his big thing was like, even now, yes, in the 90s, he did his thing by making sure the street team were these folks out there spreading Mm -hmm. the word and making sure these records get broken. But now in the digital era, everyone, of course, is moving to who they can try to get a DM from or who's big as many followers, but no, like you still need to go out there. And I do think that for the folks that are willing to do this, it is a big opportunity. And because it's underserved, you will have a leg up because a lot of your peers are not doing this. And like, there's a sense, and I'll be honest with you. It's like a class thing sometimes where it's like every Chicago rapper that came up under me that I've seen or like thrown shows with, I'm always like, you know what you need to do. You need to get, once it's safe to do so, get in the car and drive down I-95. Just drive all the way to Louisiana and then, or 75. I don't know which expressway it is, but drive down there and work your way back. Because the sound that you are probably honing in Chicago, people in Memphis are going to get with, 
people in Kansas City, people in Baton Rouge, wherever. That stuff hits because it's all the same stuff. Like it's all this like northern migration. Like you still got cousins in the country. So it's a situation where they are a going to be more excited to see you because you weren't getting that new young talent coming in because they expect you to be blowing up. But the other side of it is like you will mess around and grow a fan base. Then by the time you come home now, people are looking for you. You're now in an advantageous position because you've now built enough leverage via that market share. And in music, market share is people. Yeah, I think that people sometimes look at, for whatever reason, I feel like there should be even more passion because this is an art form and it usually takes more feeling than something that's a straight up business. But sometimes I feel like the things that happen because it's an art form get taken granted for. Like, for instance, we were talking in the beginning about how Master P specifically had to really understand who his consumers were. And I think a lot of that just comes naturally if you are going to be selling out of your trunk or if you're going to be opening your own record store, that naturally makes you understand the consumer. And thinking about what a lot of tech companies have done recently, they're doing a lot of these things, but they get these like modern labels that make them seem like it's inventing something from scratch. And it's like, okay, that's not really. Like for instance, the whole concept of doing unscalable things one of the classic stories is about the Airbnb founders. They had a few listings and they were just trying to get things off. And in the early days, they were the ones that were responding to listings. They were the ones that were going to like understand how apartments were staged and stuff like that. And it's been talked about, at least within Silicon Valley, is this like, oh yeah, you know, like they really did it. Like that's how you got to do it. And that's all true, but it's like, they didn't invent sliced bread. Like let's not act like people didn't spend the time with their businesses. Like the people that are running management weren't down at the front lines doing the work as well. Yeah. Well, I think that's a very good point to illuminate because a lot of this stuff, man, they don't know what they're talking about. And so a lot of times you have to be able to be the person who can go and do that so important research and get out there and see it for yourself because you can fudge numbers. You can put, you know, Jay used to say like men lie, women lie, numbers, numbers don't, don't lie. But we've seen, man, like if you were having a tough quarter, your numbers might do some dancing. And so if that's the case, if men lie and women lie, the numbers probably lie too. So to that point, you can't necessarily build your entire career off quantitative stuff because you're going to be that artist that has great streams, but then the time comes for you to go on tour and you can't sell out a 300 cap venue. So it's a thing for me where you have to have that balance because in the tech side, I understand that there's a kind of, I think sometimes an over-reliance on data. And so I caution artists, specifically rap artists, that this stuff is taken with the context of the people who made it. And I think the same way we're talking right. about media. Survivorship bias. Yeah. Survivorship bias, period. And so I think that's just a very important thing to call out. And when thinking about that balance between data and just understanding what's happening, that's something that yeah. rings true with QC as well. One of the yes. things that I think people often forget that I think is it's hilarious, but it speaks about the truth. There was some interview where Pierre P. Thomas, he's the CEO of Quality Control Music. He had said that he didn't own a computer. He was like, y'all might think I'm ignorant, but I don't own a computer. Like all these other labels are right. looking at these streams and your Instagram likes. And he's like, I don't care about that stuff as much. Like I'm in it. And yeah, right. you know, like a lot of those intangibles speak to 
I don't want to say old school, but it speaks to a form that's like, no, like we see where Mm -hmm. things are going. This can help our game, but this is not going to take over our game. And I think that he did a really good job of that. And I think that has spoken a lot to the success that and several other things that spoke a lot to the success of why quality control works and why it's been successful the past seven years. I enjoyed your article too, because I think you made a great point about the ecosystem of Atlanta and how obviously like it's ideal if you want to work in music. Right. And I think to that point, P and coach case, you know, I only know more so about coach K, but they are the descendants of master P in this context. They are keeping the true kind of essence, that same essence, that original Def Jam, that same essence, that cold crush, that same essence that all of these legendary rap labels put together, which was we got to get in the streets and we also have to get in these boardrooms. And so that's some very Atlanta shit, having lived there for a couple of years. You know, I, I saw it in real time being a native of Chicago. And I was like, damn, I wish we could do that in Chicago because right. you have your entire supply chain damn near in one place. But also, if we make a song tonight, we can go to the club in real time and hear it get played. If it's a hit in the strip club or wherever we pull in it. Good, we right. know. And now we're going to go serve it to the DJs and all that stuff. Yeah. And just for the listeners, why do you think that that couldn't happen in Chicago? Again, there are people who have a lot of different thoughts, but it's the same thing. The reason that Chicago itself could not be a bigger cultural player and it's segregation, lack of resources and the resources that we do have. My dad used to say Chicago is a city where the people with money have no taste and the people with taste have no money. Mm. Say more um, about the segregation and, piece, because I know people would say yeah. that Atlanta segregated, too. I spent well, a bit of time. I, there too. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I've lived in both. And I think Chicago is a it's fascinating how segregated it is and how accepted that segregation is, because it truly is. There's a street called Roosevelt. You go across Roosevelt. You are no longer in what people call Chicago. And you see that segregation reflected in how like food and drink coverage happens in the city. And a lot of times that reflects on music because, and I can speak from experience with this because I was working at the Chicago Tribune in 2011, 2012, when Chief Keith became the national darling of the city. And so I got to firsthand see like our team was the first team to go to Keith's grandma's house. So we had like the first Chief Keith interview at length ever, right? The thing I kept seeing was all of this amazing talent all of a sudden is bubbling up. But the thing is, it's always been there. The only thing that changed was we had all of this, like, I call it like the flight of the A&Rs. Because you had this, like, parachute in of all these A&Rs and all these marketing people and all these brand people who are like, Chicago's hot. Let's get in. And so you saw for the first time what could happen if Chicago talent got resources. Because mm. a lot of stuff got built. A lot of studios are standing now because of that. And a lot of artists are giving back and setting up programs. And there's already existing stuff. Like, let me be very serious. Like, Chicago has, I actually have been working with the city of Chicago for the last six or seven months because we're trying to do something around the Department of Culture and uh, Cultural Affairs to say, like, hey, how can we continue this legacy of Chicago music? Because, you know, like, Chicago's musical history is crazy, like Mm -hmm. Muddy Waters, you know, all of that legendary chess music and the blues and all of that coming into house music and all of that, coming into rap, and now Kanye's in Wyoming. So that's the long answer. The short answer is the segregation is a really unfortunate problem in Chicago because it's something that's ingrained. And I think that if it was not, I think we'd see more of an Atlanta-type scenario in Chicago. I could see that. Yeah, because I think with Atlanta specifically, it's interesting where, yeah, 
QC was able to get infrastructure and start building things. The difference, though, and I talked a little bit about this in the article, is that it's not like Atlanta was this dormant market by any means. It was already the hottest market in hip hop. But I think what people forget is that there's a big difference between whether it was so, so deaf or LaFace coming in and it's like, okay, yeah, we're here, but we still rely Mm -hmm. on everyone in the coast to get stuff done. So we kind of have like a satellite office here versus QC. Not only did they come at it from a bit of a different perspective, they also had a stronger ecosystem around them, both with what's happening in entertainment, what's happening in tech right now, how much easier it is for those things to happen given technology. And not only do I think that they just went about it differently, I think they had benefits to their advantage that, you know, respectively speaking, Jermaine Dupree or Babyface didn't necessarily have in the 90s. It's tricky because I think Jermaine Dupree is a better example because Babyface was making R&B, right? So like he had that R&B money going. I think So So Def, like they got on because of previously existing ties. So you had those satellite offices, which they're not much, but they're important because a lot of cities don't even have those. So if I could go to Atlanta where a lot of, you know, in the 90s specifically, it was super cheap. Like you could go set up and build a studio like a Stankonia or a Patchwork or something like that or a Tree Sound, and you can have that piece of it, right? So the strip club culture been there forever. That's a piece of it. You have the folks who are using this is like the interstate. You're going back and forth from you know, Florida to wherever. It's a stop. So I think there's a lot of cultural factors that go into Atlanta's dominance. And I think that it's not able to be replicated because the conditions that created it aren't something you can you can't make a city cheaper and then give people the ability, specifically black people, the ability to make enough money to build things and own things. And I think that's why Atlanta is great. I think with other cities, though, the key that I want to talk about is it doesn't matter where you are, because if you can look and see that you have data or if you can get in your car and go and see that you can draw an audience, you have to kind of be able to use both of those skill sets accordingly to build your empire. A few things. I think from a label perspective, I do think that where you set up shop does make a little bit more of a difference. From an artist mm. perspective now, I think you do have a bit more flexibility. It's been dope to see what's happening, like South Florida, especially the past yeah. five or six years. Memphis, if we're dating back a little bit earlier, but oh, yeah. even more recently. like So yeah, they definitely had these regions come up. And I do think that Atlanta has a lot of potential because I think when you think about the artist on that label, and I guess this is where QC and No Limit differ a little bit. I've always Mm -hmm. jokingly said people get mad when I say this, but Master P, I think, did the most with the label that really wasn't the most talented artist, but it just shows how (laughs) well-skilled I worded that way in case Silk the Shockers listen to this. Silk the Shockers, yeah. But you like, don't pull up on you on Instagram. <laughs> <laughs> but, but yeah, I do think that, on the other hand, though, QC does have the talent. I mean, Lil Baby has been one of the hottest artists this quarantine, this 2020. I haven't heard a bad Lil Baby verse in nine months. Right. <laughs> Pre-COVID. I was like, right. he's he hasn't missed it. He hasn't missed in a while. You know what I'm saying? You see somebody right. playing basketball, they haven't missed in a while. It's like, right. hey. And it's even crazy because this guy started rapping three years ago. 
Oh yeah, I love it. Yeah, that's that's inspiring to me. Yeah, the story's great, and like this is another thing that it often gets talked about in tech, but doesn't get talked about in hip hop in that same type of way. Is you know, there's always this whole talk about like second time founders. You know, they're always more experienced. Yeah. They come to the game, and they're more likely to get funding from the VCs. They're more likely to do this. That's all true, but I think that there's nuances with hip hop as well because both. P and Coach K came in with experience. They had started record labels. Yep. They didn't necessarily work out, but you learn a lot from that. And when yep. you have Coach K having a bit more experience, because he had managed oh, yeah. Jeezy, got fired Jeezy by Jeezy, managed Gucci. Yeah, if you manage those artists, you understand what's going on. And obviously, yep. P's born and raised there. So when you combine that, I think that they had the experience, but also they also just had a willingness to be able to work with youth. And I yes. think that's a subtle thing that people often forget. In the article, I brought up the comparison to Rock Nation. I use them in that sense because I think it's an easier one for people to follow. But if people are a bit older and more mature in the game, they're more likely to want to start companies with the areas that they know. And if you look yep. at Rock Nation's management artists, yeah, it's a lot of Jay-Z's peers from the tri-state area that he came up with. <laughs> like all the people yeah. that are like, you know, in their 40s and 50s now, like like him yeah. versus QC and P. These are two men in their forties and managing these 20 year olds. They have to build their trust. You have to understand how to like talk to them in a way where you're not just like, you know, back in my day. No, like you right. got to understand, like I can learn from a 19 year old with fruit juice colored braids and That's his hair like little Yachty. Yeah. I can learn yeah. from these two women in Miami that are blowing up in the scene as well with city girls. You got to be able to have that humility. And those are the subtle things I think get missed with management and just also with being an executive in this game. I interned for the late great Shakira Stewart. And one of the things he said to me one time that I will never forget was he goes, don't be too smart for your own good. And I think a lot of times when someone, specifically when someone has triumphed in an industry that's really tough, it's very hard to get them to look at success in any other way than the way that they did it, right? Like they don't want to hear that you can just make a record now and put it out at night and get a hundred thousand streams because they're used to carrying crates through the club, you know? And so I agree with your point because that's the difference between good and great business and truthfully good and great leadership, because it's like, Hey, you know what? What we don't know, we can learn, but let's not be too smart for our own good. Let's go see what these kids are into without judgment or without the comparison. That's not fair to a bygone era, you can say, yo, this is something that the streets are invested in, but also the culture is the kids, man. Like rap is youth culture, period. So the reason you see a lot of artists fall off is because they fossilize culturally, right? So their brains get hard and they say, well, this is the best it's ever going to be because they were the top of the social hierarchy. They were the most popping. So that's the best it's ever going to be. And that's the same reason I feel like a lot of these sub labels that are vanity imprints that an artist who, you know, may have gone gold gets and then their whole team doesn't get on. It's because it's like you're using your perspective as the main perspective versus going and doing good business, which is going and doing your research, going down and seeing what's happening in Miami, going out and seeing Lil Yachty got the kid parties going crazy. That level of transparency and that level of honesty with yourself is why they're winning because they know that they don't know. Yeah, they figured it out. And I think that's going to help them very well moving forward because we just got to be real. 
most artists don't stay hot forever. And a lot of the artists on QC's label have already had their moment. So now they're most likely going to have to transition into who are the Gen Z rappers out there. Like, it's funny. I occasionally will talk to my 10 year old nephew who listens to all these people that I haven't even like heard of. Like, well, I mean, I've heard of them because I follow, but I'm like, I've never even saw the blip besides seeing their name come up on a headline and you telling me about them. But those are the kind of artists that I know that labels like QC are going to have to start going after. And I know that it's going to be an even more different language than what they might be used to with a little baby or a takeoff or Mm -hmm. anyone else that's on the label right now. So I think they'll be fine, but you know, nothing is guaranteed in this game. I think if you're trying to run a boutique shop like QC, you do end up only being as strong as the few flagship artists that you have. And you got to hope that you could have another moment like Migos in 2017 or a little baby right now to keep that going. It's also a nice point to bring out with Master P's kind of rise because that was one thing that he did well the first time, which led to the success that they had in No Limit was when Master P moved back from California to New Orleans, there was tons of competition in the city already in the music space. You had obviously cash money, but you had these little like, you know, labels that are more niche that weren't challenger brands in the larger sense, but still were populating the market. So, you know, one specifically uh, is called Parkway Pumping roster you know traditionally was pretty much that previous label's roster right so you think about fiend mac mr servant slim you know all of those people were on parkway pumping and now they're on no limit and the reason that it happened is because parkway operated without any contracts you know that's unfortunate but that's a thing that i think p learned because he was like i gotta switch it up because the people that i was the original artists that were signing no limit weren't as relevant anymore and so he switched it up and it brought him success but then the, i think the issue with him was he didn't switch it up again right he was like okay if it's no limit they're gonna like it which is true because for a while like again 23 albums in a year people were just buying it because it had no limit in the pen and pixel you know what right. i'm saying so he didn't pivot properly because he was like, okay. And he, honestly, he did try again with little Romeo, right? We can't deny little Romeo, right? Because he did have some hot singles. Yeah. So you saw Pete try it again, but the problem is he couldn't stick it. And even the second time he came back with that Al Capone stuff, he got with fat Trell and all that. They get it because they understand that they can't be the hot young shit anymore. So now it's like, we have to be able to speak to that audience in a credible way. And I know that they had like family troubles as well. Like what was the in-house label group? That was his cousin, Beats by the Pound. Pound. Yeah, when Beats by by the Pound Pound. left, that caused the whole split. And then C Murder. KLC is the story of No Limit. And obviously C Murder going to jail, free C Murder. But it's very wild because KLC is probably the single most important, other than like Manny Fresh, the two most important people to New Orleans rap. Because... KLC, he assembled Beats by the Pound, which is him, Moby Dick, his cousin, and a couple other people. I might be getting that wrong, so don't hold me to that. But they were the sound of No Limit Records. That is the sound of Beats by the Pound is the sound of No Limit, the same way Manny Fresh is the sound of Cash Money. Right. You know, same as Swiss Beats is the sound of Rough, of Rough Riders. Riders. I think that's another thing where we talk about, from a brand perspective, you notice that a lot of the challenger brands that are popular in any industry always have some iconic thing that you know them for, right? Under Armour, aggressive you get that u and that a you think about casper it's like the bed in the box and no limit was the tank and it was yep. those album covers to the point where everybody started doing pen and pixel album covers because if you look at that on a shelf and you're in a record store 
big bears having things that wasn't a no limit, but it's like, it's going to stand out to you. So that's the kind of thing that I think is just kind of important to call out because with challenger brands, like we think about marketing is like tactics, right? Like, Hey, I have to do my stream numbers. I have to have all my social accounts, all that stuff. But the stuff you're doing, the consistent branding that you're doing, like, you know, you think about chains, you think about Rockefeller, you think about the diamond, you think about that chain. Yep. And so those branding things, if I know that I can throw up a sign in an Astro team, or I know that I can rep that set, I'm going to have that brand affinity because now it's more than music. Now you're part of my everyday. Right. You need those tokens. You need those things that you can yeah. be like, yes, this the is the best me. example, modern example. Like he's a challenger brand, but he also like, I don't think he's trying to be is currency, right? The jets are loyal. They are deep. They are consistent and they are on time and they all like a good album filled with raps. And so like currency wins because he knows the Jets need something to ride to. They got the Jet Life apparel. You're going to see it in the blocks. Anybody with a cool car, I think that's the kind of stuff where the mentality of branding yourself to an audience, when you start, unfortunately, thinking of your music as a product, is a piece that people miss. They go, oh, I'm just going to wear designer, and people are just going to look at me on the internet. But it's like, nah, like, how can I see myself in you? No, that makes sense. So when you were thinking about this and we were both thinking about the identity of a challenger brand, what were some of the other ones that came to mind? Like what were some of the other, like specifically in hip hop? I think in hip hop it's tricky, but I think the biggest challenger brand in the record industry is XL, XL records. I mean, they are, you know, an independent, you know, they have a distro deal, but they are creating what they want to create. And they have that market share, but they also put out Adele records. You know what I'm saying? Like they have the ability to be a major player in the space, despite not having all the same tools as a major. So in rap, I mean, they do some rap, but I would say, I know you had a really great example of just having like Griselda is a really great example. Yeah. Griselda, I think identify themselves or branded themselves pretty well, almost in that Under Armour type way where, and not that I would even consider Griselda aggressive, but when we think about how hip hop has changed in the past six or seven years, like, yeah, since the streaming era took off, like music got slower, like the trap beats and the quote unquote Travis Scott style influence. I mean, I wouldn't say just him future as well, but a lot of that type of artistry and style got copied so much over and that that's very different than what a lot of the Gen X hip hop fans grew up with, right? Like they want the boom bath. Like they want the music that makes them feel like they're listening to like one of Nas's albums in the nineties or something that's made by premier. And I think that they hit that market. Well, they also were speaking about regions. You don't normally see something from, I've never been to Buffalo in my life. I feel like I'm pretty well traveled in the U S but they're putting a city like that on the map. And they have all the stories to be like, Hey, this is happening. And you know, it's not like they're out here trying to stunt about it. They're building their fan base. They know that they can go to shows. They're selling out in different areas and this is actually a small tactic that works very well for them. The people that they cater to, as I mentioned, like the Gen X or even some of those older Mm. millennials, those are a lot of the people that currently run hip hop media, right? So if you are making the music that a Charlemagne the God or Elliot Wilson is going to naturally like, you're going to get more coverage than a little fill in the blank that is bumping on SoundCloud. But that's knowing your niche. And that's being like a challenger brand. Like I think diplomats were a good example of them as well back in the day. But the thing about Gazelda that I also real quick want to shout out 
Ellie Wilson because that hardcover project he does with Danielle Smith and Darian Harvin is dope. So shout out to them. But I think it's really important to hone in on the piece that you just said around they are really good at giving you their lifestyle. Griselda shows were happening in Chicago. They probably had two or three shows truly before everybody found out about Griselda. Like just people that I knew were throwing them, they were working with them. And so it's something where they did the old school method. And I think a lot of artists are smart enough to have seen what a masterpiece did, who have seen even now what a QC did. And they're like, oh, okay. We can make our own. We can bring people into our world. We can corner this market that is definitely aching for something new. We can bring that and we can put it in a package that's familiar to people. Because like Westside Guns album is great, but he also has some boom bap stuff on there and he's got some fashion stuff. You know what I'm saying? So he's speaking to a very specific audience and I think they're going to be successful because that audience is being served really great product too. Right. Like they learn from a no limit. There are no duds on that label. Right. Like I haven't heard of bad results the rap yet. No, neither have I neither <laughs> like have at I. all. And so it's like, okay, cool. You know, you look at something like a collaboration or something like that, where an alchemist or someone like that will come in, like they're able to flow their brand on a different context. They can have a heavy, darker sound or it can have some street shit or they can have something that sounds like classic ghost face and it all works because it's their brand. Yeah. They're doing it. They figured it out. And I think that, They'll continue to rise in in a few years. Like if you and I connect on challenger brands, we'll probably have even something stronger to talk about yeah. with regards I hope that, I hope that they're that. I hope they're a case study of what's to come, truly, because I think the other piece of this, and this is for older artists, you can become a challenger brand in the space, mostly because you already have brand awareness. That's why Joe Button's winning. Joe Button had awareness already. The shows, all that stuff that he was doing and being a rapper, but that man literally was like, okay, bet I'm going to take my brand awareness and I'm going to become a challenger brand in a different industry. He took, he was like, you know, screw rap. I'm going to go over here in this podcast and get it popping. And now he is a challenger brand still somehow because he's not still looked at in the same levels as I think a challenger brand in the broader sense. Like I think he's dominated rap, but I think like he's in a Joe Rogan, that level space where he's a challenger brand for those heavy hitters. And that team, I think, was so smart to put that together. But that's a perfect example, too. Like, if you're an older artist or Noriega, you see with Drink Champs, and your lane in that industry is filled, like, jump in something else. You know, uh, everybody and their mom has a podcast now, so maybe not that. Uh, you should also just only listen to Office Hours and the Travel the Podcast. <laughs> um, but I think it's important to just say, like, hey, if there's another industry that you are in that you can dive in and really become a challenger brand in that space, you're going to have a leg up because people already know who you are. Well said. Well, before we end this, anything else that listeners should know about challenger brands or anything else that you ought to make sure people know about? I would advise anyone who is running their team, the rap team, to go read Eating the Big Fish. I would say look at your current situation for the next six months and you should lay it out and see if you are a challenger brand or you need to get into a position where you can become one. And I think everybody should read Office Hours. It's a great newsletter. Monday, Wednesdays, and Fridays, the best cultural analysis, music, and marketing tips. I am everywhere on the internet at Ernest Wilkins. What's up? No A in that Ernest. And where could they subscribe to Office Hours? We're going to go to officehours.substack.com. Follow me on Twitter, Instagram. It's all the same, Ernest Wilkins. 
If you enjoyed this podcast, please tell at least one friend about this podcast. Word of mouth is still the best way to grow. Go to Apple Podcasts, go to iTunes, leave a review, rate the podcast. I will screenshot and share the podcast ratings on Twitter and Instagram. That can encourage more people to share the podcast. And if this podcast is your first introduction to Trapital, then make sure you check out the rest of the content. Go to Trapital.co. That's T-R-A-P-I-T-A-L.co. Sign up for the weekly newsletter. Get all the content there. And also shoot me a text. That's also a great way to stay in touch with Trapital content. You can text me, Dan Runcie, at 415-234-3074. Thanks again. See you next week.